section fifty two of volume one d of history of england from the invasion of julius caesar to the revolution of sixteen hundred and eighty eight this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org read for you by chiquito crasto history of england from the invasion of julius caesar to the revolution of sixteen hundred and eighty eight by david hume volume one d section fifty two chapter forty seven part one james the first this year the sudden death of henry prince of wales diffused a universal grief throughout the nation though youth and royal birth both of them strong allurements prepossess men mightily in favour of the early age of princes it is with peculiar fondness that historians mention henry and in every respect his merit seems to have been extraordinary he had not reached his eighteenth year and he had already possessed more dignity in his behaviour and commanded more respect than his father with all his age learning and experience neither his high fortune nor his youth had seduced him into any irregular pleasures business and ambition seemed to have been his sole possession his inclinations as well as exercises were martial the french ambassador taking leave of him and asking his commands for france found him employed in the exercise of the pike tell your king said he in what occupation you left me engaged he had conceived great affection and esteem for the brave sir walter raleigh it was his saying sure no king but my father would keep such a bird in a cage he seems indeed to have nourished too violent a contempt for the king on account of his pedantry and pusillanimity and by that means struck in with the restless and martial spirit of the english nation the unhappy prepossession which men commonly entertain in favour of ambition courage enterprise and other warlike virtues engages generous natures who always love fame in such pursuits all destroy their own peace and that of the rest of mankind violent reports were propagated as if henry had been carried off by poison but the physicians on opening his body found no symptoms to confirm such an opinion the bold and criminal malignity of men's tongues and pens spared not even the king on the occasion but that prince's character seems rather to have failed in the extreme of facility and humanity than in that of cruelty and violence his indulgence to henry was so great and perhaps imprudent by giving him a large and independent settlement even in so early youth the marriage of princess elizabeth with frederick elector palatine was finished some time after the death of the prince and served to dissipate the grief which arose on that melancholy event but this marriage though celebrated with great joy and festivity proved itself an unhappy event to the king as well as to his son-in-law and had ill consequences on the reputation and fortunes of both the elector trusting to so great an alliance engaged in enterprises beyond his strength and the king not being able to support him in his distress lost entirely in the end of his life what remained of the affections and esteem of his own subjects except during sessions of parliament the history of this reign may more properly be called the history of the court than that of the nation an interesting object had for some years engaged the attention of the court it was a favourite and one beloved by james with so profuse and unlimited an affection as left no room for any rival or competitor about the end of the year sixteen hundred and nine robert carr a youth of twenty years of age and of a good family in scotland arrived in london 
after having passed some time in his travels. All his natural accomplishments consisted in good looks, all his acquired abilities in an easy air and graceful demeanour. He had letters of recommendation to his countryman, Lord Hay, and that nobleman no sooner cast his eye upon him than he discovered talents sufficient to entitle him immediately to make a great figure in the government. Apprised of the king's passion for youth and beauty, an exterior appearance, he studied how matters might be so managed that his new object should make the strongest impression upon him. Without mentioning him at court, he assigned him the office at a match of tilting, of presenting to the king his buckler and device, and hoped that he would attract the attention of the monarch. Fortune proved favourable to his design, by an incident which bore at first a contrary aspect. When Carr was advancing to execute his office, his unruly horse flung him, and broke his leg in the king's presence. James approached him with pity and concern. Love and affection arose on the sight of his beauty and tender years, and the prince ordered him immediately to be lodged in the palace, and to be carefully attended. He himself, after the tilting, paid him a visit in his chamber, and frequently returned during his confinement. The ignorance and simplicity of the boy finished the conquest begun by his exterior graces and accomplishments. Other princes have been fond of choosing their favourites, from among the lower ranks of their subjects, and have reposed themselves on them with the more unreserved confidence and affection, because the object has been beholden to their bounty for every honour and acquisition. James was desirous that his favourite should also derive from him all his sense, experience, and knowledge. Highly conceited of his own wisdom, he pleased himself with the fancy that his raw youth, by his lessons and instructions, would, in a little time, be equal to his sagest ministers, and be initiated into all the profound mysteries of government on which he set so high a value. And as this kind of creation was more perfectly on his own work than any other, he seems to have indulged an unlimited fondness for his minion, beyond even that which he bore to his own children. He soon knighted him, created him Viscount Rochester, gave him the garter, brought him into the Privy Council, and though at first without assigning him any particular office, bestowed on him the supreme direction of all his business and political concerns. Agreeable to this rapid advancement in confidence and honour were the riches heaped upon the needy favourite, and while Salisbury and all the wisest ministers could scarcely find expedients sufficient to keep in motion the overburdened machine of government, James, with unsparing hand, loaded with treasures this insignificant and useless pageant. It is said that the king found his pupil so ill-educated as to be ignorant even of the lowest rudiments of the Latin tongue, and that the monarch, laying aside the sceptre, took the birch into his royal hand and instructed him in the principles of grammar. During the intervals of this noble occupation, affairs of state would be introduced, and the stripling by the ascendant which he had acquired was now enabled to repay on political what he had received in grammatical instruction. Such scenes and such incidents are the more ridiculous, though the less odious, as the passion of James seems not to have contained in it anything criminal or flagitious. History charges herself willingly with a relation of the great crimes, and still more with that of the great virtues of mankind, but she appears to fall from her dignity when necessitated to dwell on such frivolous events and ignoble personages. The favourite was not at first so intoxicated with advancement as not to be sensible of his own ignorance and inexperience, he had recourse to the assistance and advice of a friend, and he was more fortunate in his choice than is usual with such pampered minions. In Sir Thomas Overbury 
he met with a judicious and sincere counsellor who building all hopes of his own preferment on that of the young favourite endeavoured to instil into him the principles of prudence and discretion by zealously serving everybody carr was taught to abate the envy which might attend his sudden elevation by showing a preference for the english he learned to escape the prejudices which prevailed against his country and so long as he was content to be ruled by overbury's friendly counsels he enjoyed what is rare the highest favour of the prince without being hated by the people to complete the measure of courtly happiness naught was wanting but a kind mistress and where high fortune concurred with all the graces of youth and beauty this circumstance could not be difficult to attain but it was here that the favourite met with that rock on which all his fortunes were wrecked and which plunged him for ever into an abyss of infamy guilt and misery no sooner had james mounted the throne of england than he remembered his friendship for the unfortunate families of howard and deverer who had suffered for their attachment to the cause of mary and to his own having restored young essex to his blood and dignity and conferred the titles of suffolk and northampton on two brothers of the house of norfolk he sought the further pleasure of uniting these families by the marriage of the earl of essex with the lady frances howard daughter of the earl of suffolk she was only thirteen he fourteen years of age and it was thought proper till both should attain the age of puberty that he should go abroad and pass some times in his travels he returned to england after four years absence and was pleased to find his countess in the full lustre of beauty and possessed of the love and admiration of the whole court but when the earl approached and claimed the privileges of her husband he met with nothing but symptoms of aversion and disgust and a flat refusal of any further familiarities he applied to her parents who constrained her to attend him into the country and to partake of his bed but nothing could overcome her rigid sullenness and obstinacy and still she rose from his side without having shared the nuptial pleasures disgusted with reiterated denials he at last gave over the pursuit and separating himself from her thenceforth abandoned her conduct to her own will and discretion such cold and aversion in lady essex arose not without an attachment to another object her favourite had opened his addresses and had been too successful in making impression on the tender heart of the young countess she imagined that so long as she refused the embraces of essex she never could be deemed his wife and that a separation and divorce might still open the way for a new marriage with her beloved rochester though their passion was so violent and their opportunities of intercourse so frequent that they had already indulged themselves in all the gratifications of love they still lamented their unhappy fate while the union between them was not entire and indissoluble and the lover as well as his mistress was impatient till their mutual ardour should be crowned by marriage so momentous an affair could not be concluded without consulting overbury with whom rochester was accustomed to share all his secrets while that faithful friend had considered his patron's attachment to the countess of essex merely as an affair of gallantry he had favoured its progress and it was partly owing to the ingenious and passionate letters which he dictated that rochester had met with such success in his addresses like an experienced courtier he thought that a conquest of this nature would throw a lustre on the young favourite and would tend still further to endear him to james who was charmed to hear the armours of his coat and listened with attention to every tale of gallantry but great was overbury's alarm when rochester mentioned his design of marrying the countess and he used every method to dissuade his friend from so foolish an attempt he represented how invidious how difficult an enterprise to procure her a divorce from her husband how dangerous how shameful to take into his own bed a profligate woman 
who being married to a young nobleman of the first rank had not scrupled to prostitute her character and to bestow favours on the object of a capricious and momentary passion and in the zeal of friendship he went so far as to threaten rochester that he would separate himself from him if he could so far forget his honour and his interest as to prosecute the intended marriage rochester had the weakness to reveal this conversation to the countess of essex and when her rage and fury broke out against overbury he had also the weakness to enter into her vindictive projects and to swear vengeance against his friend for the utmost instance which he could receive of his faithful friendship some contrivance was necessary for the execution of their purpose rochester addressed himself to the king and after complaining that his own indulgence to overbury had begotten in him a degree of arrogance which was extremely disagreeable he procured a commission for his embassy to russia which he represented as a retreat for his friend both profitable and honourable when consulted by overbury he earnestly dissuaded him from accepting this offer and took on himself the office of satisfying the king if he should be anywise displeased with the refusal to the king again he aggravated the insolence of overbury's conduct and obtained a warrant for committing him to the tower which james intended as a slight punishment for his disobedience the lieutenant of the tower was a creature of rochester's and had lately been put into the office for this very purpose he confined overbury so strictly that the unhappy prisoner was debarred the sight even of his nearest relations and no communication of any kind was allowed with him during near six months which he lived in prison this obstacle being removed the lovers pursued their purpose and the king himself forgetting the dignity of his character and his friendship for the family of essex entered zealously into the project of procuring the countess a divorce from her husband essex also embraced the opportunity of separating himself from a bad woman by whom he was hated and he was willing to favour their success by any honourable expedient the pretence for a divorce was his incapacity to fulfil the conjugal duties and he confessed that with regard to the countess he was conscious of such an infirmity though he was not sensible of it with regard to any other woman in her place too it is said a young virgin was substituted under a mask to undergo a legal inspection by a jury of matrons after such a trial seconded by court influence and supported by the ridiculous opinion of fascination or witchcraft the sentence of divorce was pronounced between the earl of essex and his countess and to crown the scene the king solicitous lest the lady should lose any rank by her new marriage bestowed on his minion the title of earl of somerset notwithstanding this success the countess of somerset was not satisfied till she could further satiate her revenge on overbury and she engaged her husband as well as her uncle the earl of northampton in the atrocious design of taking him off secretly by poison fruitless attempts were reiterated by weak poisons but at last they gave him one so sudden and violent that the symptoms were apparent to every one who approached him his interment was hurried on with the greatest precipitation and though a strong suspicion immediately prevailed in the public the full proof of the crime was not brought to light till some years after the fatal catastrophe of overbury increased or begot the suspicion that the prince of wales had been carried off by poison given him by somerset men considered not that the contrary inference was much juster if somerset was so great a novice in this detestable art that during the course of five months a man who was his prisoner and attended by none but his emissaries could not be dispatched but in so bungling a manner how could it be imagined that a young prince living in his own court surrounded by his own friends and domestics could be exposed to somerset's attempts and be taken off by so subtile a poison if such a one exist as could elude the skill of the most experienced physicians
the ablest minister that james ever possessed the earl of salisbury was dead suffolk a man of slender capacity had succeeded him in his office and it was now his task to supply from an exhausted treasury the profusion of james and of his young favourite the title of baronet invented by salisbury was sold and two hundred patents of that species of knighthood were disposed of for so many thousand pounds each rank of nobility had also its price affixed to it privy seals were circulated to the amount of two hundred thousand pounds benevolences were exacted to the amount of fifty two thousand pounds and some monopolies of no great value were erected but all these expedients proved insufficient to supply the king's necessities even though he began to enter into some schemes for retrenching his expenses however small the hopes of success a new parliament must be summoned and this dangerous expedient for such it was now become once more be put to trial when the commons were assembled they discovered an extraordinary alarm on account of the rumour which was spread abroad concerning undertakers it was reported that several persons attached to the king had entered into a confederacy and having laid a regular plan for the new elections had distributed their interest all over england and had undertaken to secure a majority for the court so ignorant were the commons that they knew not this incident to be the first infallible symptom of any regular or established liberty had they been contented to follow the maxims of their predecessors who as the earl of salisbury said to the last parliament never but thrice in six hundred years refused a supply they needed not dread that the crown should ever interest itself in their elections formerly the kings even insisted that none of their households should be elected members and though the charter was afterwards declared void henry the sixth from his great favour to the city of york conferred a peculiar privilege on its citizens that they should be exempted from this trouble it is well known that in ancient times a seat in the house being considered as a burden attended neither with honour nor profit it was requisite for the counties and boroughs to pay fees to their representatives about this time a seat began to be regarded as an honour and the country gentlemen contended for it though the practice of levying wages for the parliament men was not altogether discontinued it was not till long after when liberty was thoroughly established and popular assemblies entered into every branch of public business that the members began to join profit to honour and the crown found it necessary to distribute among them all the considerable offices of the kingdom end of section fifty two chapter forty seven part one read for you by chiquito crasto birmingham alabama